Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, on January 15, 1817, a group of some of the most prominent African-American leaders called a public meeting at Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, which had at that time one of the largest communities of free blacks in the United States. Those leaders had intended to support a plan for settling American blacks in Africa, but the audience of supposed supporters, people whom they thought would agree with them, vociferously disagreed. They saw themselves as American citizens and had no desire to go to an Africa which they had never seen. My guest Christopher Bonner argues that African Americans did not seize on to American citizenship. They're actually the creators of it. Citizenship in the early 19th century was a malleable concept. African Americans took advantage of that, and by contributing to the developing legal and political definition of American citizenship, they were an essential part of transforming the legal order of the American Republic. Christopher Bonner is assistant professor at the University of Maryland College Park. He's the author of Remaking the Republic, Black Politics and the Creation of American Citizenship, which is the focus of our conversation today. Christopher Bonner, welcome to Historically Thinking. Uh, hi, Al. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's really exciting to have this opportunity to, to talk about my work and, and to you know continue to remember that the book is done, which is a really good feeling. <laughs> Yeah, it's always good. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's an incredibly it's a great book. As I was saying to you in our in sort of our green room discussion, mm-hmm. um, it's um, it helps me see a lot of things differently mm-hmm. um, in the antebellum era. Knowing that this now that you've pointed out things to me that are hiding in plain sight, hmm. um, and I feel like kicking myself that you know <laughs> I didn't see this myself. Right. Um, but let's begin with the, the argument between. Um, John Brown Rustrum and Samuel Cornish, since you sort of framed the book with with this question. Yeah. So what's who are they and what's their argument? Yeah, so so Samuel Cornish and John Brown Rustrum are essentially two colleagues or two uh, one-time colleagues who um, worked to establish the first African-American newspaper in 1827. It's called Freedom's Journal, and it's basically going to be a vehicle to cover everything of interest to free African-Americans and to help organize black people into political coalitions. And so it's, it's this big moment to establish a um, formal uh, item, a formal place that will be a sort of center for black conversation, uh, an item for informing African-Americans about what's going on in other places. The conflict comes about really in the, in the sort of last stages of Freedom's Journal, and it's and it's really a conflict that's rooted in the story you told to start here about this 18, 1817 meeting. It's a disagreement about black people, a disagreement among black people over whether they feel like they have a future in the United States. Can African Americans ever really feel like they belong in the country? Can they achieve anything like equality, like the equality that's promised to people in the founding documents? Samuel Cornish and John Russell come to different answers to those kinds of questions. They feel differently about this, the, the colonization movement that emerges around this period. And that disagreement reflects some of the sort of fundamental tensions in black politics of this period. So basically, Russell and Cornish are writing this newspaper 
in large part because free African-Americans in the North lived under all sorts of legal restrictions. So, so an example of this is that New York state constitution said all white men could vote, but black men could only vote if they owned $250 worth of property. So one of the things that they're trying to do in Freedom's Journal is to bring people together to talk about strategies to, to try to confront these kinds of legal restrictions. But Cornish actually left the newspaper not long after it was founded. He wanted to focus on his work as a minister. And so Russ Worm continued his efforts, his, his political projects with Freedom's Journal um, for the next couple of years. And then by 1829, he seems to have really started to have serious doubts about his future, about Black Americans' future in the United States. Could Black people be equal in a nation that did so much to uphold slavery and that did so much to restrict Black freedom? So Russ Worm, at this point in 1829, publicly embraces the project of the American Colonization Society. It's uh, the, the ACS is what I refer to it, or is how it's referred mm -hmm. to. This was a group of white Americans, northerners, northerners and southerners, who had all sorts of different. Up, sorry, upper upper southerners, I should say. Uh, I mean, yeah, so, right. Typically uh, not. Well, typically not no. deep southerners. But but one of the one of the sort of appeals of the ACS is that it's some people think it's going to be an anti-slavery thing that it will encourage uh, slave owners to liberate people, and other people think it's going to be a, a a a tool to defend slavery. That if you remove mm. free black people from the country then that will make slavery more secure because slaves will be less likely to see themselves as potentially free. So there's, there's this weird coalition of people that form the ACS. But broadly, mm -hmm. they believe that black people should be removed from the country and that they should be sent to colonies in West Africa. Uh, so Russworm had done a lot of work to try to secure black equality in the country. But by 1829, he seems to have lost hope. So he wrote this editorial that said, we consider it a mere waste of words to talk of ever enjoying citizenship in this country. Basically, he comes to feel like the structures of racism in the U.S. were too powerful. Uh, formal legal rights, legal equality, these things were unattainable. And so he said it would be best for black people to go somewhere new and to try to build their own communities, to try to ensure opportunity for people of African descent. And so he did. He left the country in 1829 and he didn't return. And so the, the problem with this for Samuel Cornish and for others is, is that they disagree. They believed that this struggle should continue. And I think it was particularly upsetting that Russworm had taken what was at the point at that time, the only African-American newspaper in the country, and he had turned it into a vehicle to promote colonization. Mm -hmm. So after Russworm makes this announcement, Cornish established another newspaper of his own and he began this long project of challenging Russworm's argument and continuing to try to denounce colonization, to insist that black people uh, belong and, and wanted to belong in the United States. One just um, parenthetical note, it's, it's fascinating, like so many arguments, um, historical arguments by historical in the historical past continue for so long. Mm -hmm. And this is essentially the argument between W.E.B. Du Bois and Martin Luther King. Um, it's just a lot earlier. Yeah, it, uh, it goes on. Yeah, well, so th so there's, I mean, there's a there's a history of emigrationism, and, and I think Du Bois is actually a really interesting figure because for much of his early political career, he's he's deeply invested in black belonging in the United States. But yes, Du Bois yes. actually dies in Ghana in the 1960s after his sort of turn to the political left 
his embrace of Pan-Africanism and this um, feeling that the U.S. is not a place that is, again, this, this feeling that the U.S. is not mm-hmm. a place that's open to black political activity, to black equality. And so it is, yeah. there, there are like echoes of this um, mm-hmm. tension, of this conflict. But I, 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 write, about, I write about this th- in part through this question of like what it meant that Russ Worm explained his decision to leave by saying that citizenship was an impossibility. And so this mm-hmm. is really the story, the, the beginning of the story that I tell in my book. Um, and I, I focus a lot on all the decades of work African-Americans did to try to really secure rights and justice in the U.S. And one of the things that I think is fascinating is not only how arduous that struggle was, but how incomplete its results were. And so there, you know, we could we could talk a little bit later on. But I think sure. there, there are moments when it seems like Russ Worm might have been right about the limits of equality for African-Americans in the U.S. I mean, the, the fact that this question of emigration or colonization survived for so long, I think might suggest that there was some merit to Russ Worm's pessimism. Yeah. Um, Samuel Cornish saw something, however, that Russ Worm didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he saw something, as, you're, as you say, he saw something in the state of the the definition of citizenship in the early 19th century America, mm-hmm. uh, he saw a, a, a slot into which he could put a, a pry bar. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the le- what are the legal and de- political definitions of, of United States citizenship in the early 19th century? Yeah, that's, that's a, a really good way to say it. There, there's a space here, right? There's an opening. So, so basically, citizenship had an uncertain meaning in this time period. Um, people had disagreed since the nation's founding about the precise terms of citizenship. But, but I think there is a kind of agreement that this was an important status. So, so citizen, the word citizen uh, pops up, I, I think it's 11 times in the original U.S. Constitution. And it's, it's, it's used in, in various ways. It's a qualification for the presidency. It's also a status that protects an undefined set of privileges and immunities. And so the Constitution suggests or it, it kind of implies that this is an important status and it, and it suggests that citizenship is connected to individual rights, but there were still massive questions that remained unanswered. What are those rights? What are the rights of a citizen? And, and by the, by, in, in turn, what are the obligations of a citizen? What's required of a citizen? Uh, and then I think maybe most importantly, who can be a citizen? How does a person secure that status? Is it something you're born with? Is it something you have to earn? So there was a general sense among many people and many lawmakers that citizenship could be an important legal status, uh, that being a citizen was something, uh, that it said something important about belonging in the U.S. But there weren't really clear or agreed upon ideas about what exactly citizenship was. And so this is what's so, uh, I guess, empowering for people like Samuel Cornish. And this is what's I think so important about the black politics that I explore in the book, African-Americans saw the uncertainty of citizenship as an opportunity. There was no law that said they could not be citizens. And so black people insisted that they were, and they demanded legal protections under the status. So the language of citizenship becomes a tool. It becomes uh, this thing that they use. You know, there is an opening that is citizenship and that becomes for black activists an opening into the Republic. So people would challenge the project of colonization by saying, we were born here, and so we are citizens, and so we have the right to stay in our native country. And black New Yorkers would say, 
we are citizens. And so we should have the same right to vote that white New Yorkers have. So when they make arguments like this, black people are really building definitions of citizenship. And they're putting these definitions out into the air, either in newspapers or in petitions or in public speeches. What they're doing is like generating ideas that are making other people think. And, and you know, they're, they're saying, hmm, like maybe is a person a citizen because they're born here? Does that mean that all African-Americans are citizens? Does that mean that all African-Americans are entitled to rights? So this mm-hmm. this political strategy is pushing lawmakers and other American people to to think in new ways about what exactly citizenship meant and really to think about what it meant to belong in the country, who belongs, what are the terms of that belonging. And so these are these are really I mean, a a republic as a form of government is a, a government composed of the people. And so if one of the fundamental questions that is unanswered in the early United States is who are the people who count and and what are the terms of their place in this republic, then the, the actual, the fundamental shape of the government was uncertain. Uh, it was up for grabs. And so that's what black folks are, are arguing about when they're making claims to rights as or, or calling themselves citizens and using that to make claims to rights. So as you, as you say, um, Plenty of African Americans are saying that it's simply a matter of, of birth. Um, we were born here. Mm. We're citizens, birthright citizenship. Right. What I found also powerful were those who said, in addition to that, mm-hmm. we have all contributed to the common good. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, we are citizens. Yeah. Could you tease that out a little bit? What does that What did that mean to contribute to the common good? I yeah. mean, it's a very. I mean, if we're talking about the era of the late eighteenth century, I'd say, well, they're they're reproducing an argument of civic republicanism. Yeah. Uh, so, so part of it is, I, I think that there are, there's a lot of different ways that people are, are suggesting that they have contributed to the, to the public good. One of them is, is by saying, you know, we are, we are morally upright. We are, uh, temperate in our drinking habits. We are frugal in terms of our spending. We are, uh, hardworking in terms of our, uh, contributions to, you know, our local communities and we're self-sufficient, you know, we're not burdens on your tax system. We are not, there, there, there are these moments in, in, uh, black conventions, which are basically, uh, meetings where people would come together to discuss the issues of the day and to develop political strategies. There are moments where they have these subcommittees come and present statistics from different Northern cities to show, to prove that black people are not disproportionately poor, that they are not, uh, the, the language that they would have used was, they're not a drain on public resources. Because there are a yeah. lot of white Northerners who argue that, you know, black folks don't work hard enough, that they're not able to support themselves, and so they shouldn't be entitled to rights. And so one of the things that black people are saying is like, we contribute to our communities because we work for ourselves. We don't rely on public support. And so there's this weird sort of uh, stigmatization of people who do rely on public support, a, a mm-hmm. stigmatization of poverty that mm-hmm. is politically and, and, powerful for Black Americans, and sometimes also of the Irish. Yeah, but that's absolutely. A, that's right. Yeah, yeah and, right. And recent Im- recent immigrants. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, and that's you know when you, when people talk about drunkenness and temperance, there's a there's a lot yeah. of contrast to uh, Irish immigrants. And so there's you know there, one of the things that is fascinating to me about the book is sort of drawing out these moments of Black people's prejudices against. Uh, other groups, whether it's a, a class prejudice or a, a prejudice of nationality, 
whatever it might be. But, you know, I, 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 I hope that after reading this book, a, a reader doesn't walk away feeling like, oh, all the black activists are, are perfect, good people. Like, they're not. I think that they have a lot of uh, problematic ideas. And, and part of what I want to do is sort of draw that out and think about how they come to those ideas, right? This, yeah. this, this feeling that a citizen has to be morally perfect uh, mm-hmm. is, is, I think, really harmful um, because there's always a question of who is going to impose that moral standard and, 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 you know, by what right do they do that? So it's, there's a, but the, it's, uh, the idea that a citizen is also a good neighbor, I yeah. also find, uh, I find noble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and I, yeah. And I think, so I think that it's not, it's not just negative things, right? I think one of the, one of the other things that's, uh, that comes through is this, this feeling that a citizen has this, this argument that a citizen has an obligation to, try to continue to improve their communities and the government, right? Like an obligation to uh, advocate in, against injustice uh, and try to sort of promote a realization of the nation's founding ideals. And so I think that's a really powerful, you know, thinking about civic duty, that's a really powerful uh, and um, progressive idea that citizens mm-hmm. citizens are obligated to try to improve um the places in which they live rather than just mm-hmm. resting on their laurels and, and enjoying citizenship. So uh, there's a, there's a, essentially the, there, I guess I would say that black folks argue that there's a lot of work involved in trying to secure citizen status. And they do that because they are trying to sort of draw on all the different work that they do to try to support their claims. Mm-hmm. They're, they're trying to pull on as many tools as they can. It's, it's a, uh, I tell my students that they're like political omnivores, that they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're using whatever they can get that they think might be useful um, to try to make these claims or support these claims. Very early on, um, there is a conscientious or conscious and conscientious attempt to create a sort of national community of African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen this in the discussion already with the sort of John uh, Russworm and Sam Cornish creating yeah. this uh, African-American newspaper. That's creating a, a community of readers mm-hmm. uh, who are engaged and thinking the same thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some of the reasons for that is, is that there are relatively few free African-Americans in the North. Relatively, mm, right? Uh, fifty thousand. What Pennsylvania has the largest number, and that's fifty thousand. Um, I don't know what the population is of Pennsylvania. Probably yeah. several millions, right? But proportion, um, proportionally, they're 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 small percentages of these populations, yes. right? So they need to band together across states. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is, can you describe that creation of a, of a national community and and how that works and and what it it, it aims at? Yeah, I, I think you know, there's a. We could think of it as like this conviction that there's strength in numbers or that two heads are better than one. Like, however you want to say it, I think that people believe that it was empowering and valuable for them to work together. Uh, and so one of the ways that they do that is is through the convention movement. So people uh, start holding these national conventions, bringing people together from a black activist together from across the free states. They start doing this uh, as early as 1830. And these conventions continued through the Civil War years. Uh, but one of the other things that they do at these conventions is keep calling for a national newspaper. So Samuel Cornish didn't stay in the publishing business forever. By, by the 1840s, um, he had left uh, the newspaper business. And so activists felt like there was a serious lack here. Uh, they were calling for, repeatedly at national conventions in the 1840s, they called for a new black newspaper that would 
bring their voices to a wide audience and also help black people share ideas and information amongst themselves so they could know about what was happening beyond their local communities. So these are, uh, I would say, two of the sort of major tools, the, the, the sort of drive for a newspaper and, and the existence of black newspapers that were established uh, in the 1840s and 50s, and also the, the, you know, the, the, the convention itself as a, a place for people to come together. But I think that the, it's not just a feeling that you know, we should come together and, and discuss ideas because we want to, to show our strength in numbers. I think black activists understood that things that happened to them in a particular place weren't, their meanings weren't limited to that place. They understood that there were broad implications of what was going on. So, so think about, there's a couple ways to think about this. If a person advocates for a citizen status that secures rights to them in Pennsylvania, that might potentially be meaningful for someone in Ohio or in Massachusetts. If black Pennsylvanians can vote, then maybe black people should be able to vote in other states. Maybe this would set a precedent that would be powerful and useful for other people. And this worked the other way as well. People recognize that if colonization was allowed to flourish in New York or in, in Maryland, where it did, a, the, a slaveholding state that also, after about 1830, Maryland had the largest population of free African-Americans of any U.S. state. Uh, if a program like colonization was allowed to flourish there, then state lawmakers in other states might be encouraged to support colonization and to require black removal from the state. So things that were threatening to black people in one state might be threatening to black people in other states. Legal, legal restrictions could set dangerous precedents. So there, there are really, I think there are really practical reasons for caring about things that were happening outside of one's local community or one's own state. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's, there's a lot of effort uh, to try to bring people together. Uh, I think particularly in the 1840s, a lot of effort to try to bring black activists together across the free states. And it, you know, it wasn't always easy. It wasn't a neat process. Um, debate and democracy are tough. Uh, but trying to come to uh, an agreement or trying to sort of put out uh, statements that reflected a kind of consensus among black Americans was, was an important project that, that folks were pursuing. And of course, um, a couple of those things that you've mentioned are they mirror developments in the rest of society, which sh mm. shouldn't surprise us. And this yeah. is the era, the era of the creation of the political convention. Mm -hmm. um, this is the era we discussed at the beginning of the year. Um, uh, and when we we're discussing the new book, uh, a biography of Horace Greeley, this right. is the time of the explosion of American print. Mm -hmm. uh, of newspapers yeah. uh, and of every political party, which is another kind of the modern political party is also a creation of this era. Right. Um, it's uh, every political party in every state has to have its own newspaper mm -hmm. in order to communicate. Right. Uh, conventions are for communication in yeah. the era before the telephone. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I, I was going to say, I think party is, is interesting. It's, it's not just political parties, have, it's political constituencies. And I think that's a yes. way to think about these, these black activists. They're, you know, newspapers are fundamentally political in the early 19th century in terms yes. of like advocacy. Uh, and that's what these black newspapers are doing. It's not just information. Mm -hmm. It's not just ideas. It's, it's, it's arguments in favor mm -hmm. of justice and against slavery. Um, one 
debate that occurs at conventions, it's, it's also very interesting as, as at these con- conventions, as they're debating the nature of citizenship for mm. African-Americans, of course, they're debating the nature of American citizenship. So we've got like a mm. Jefferson agrarian argument. Um, should free blacks move into the West mm-hmm. and form farming communities? Mm-hmm. Um, should they be integrated farming mm-hmm. communities? Should they be segregated uh, should they just be black farming communities, which then gets the claim that that's just colonization in a different direction? Right. Can you talk briefly about that? Because I found that a, that's a fascinating recapitulation of arguments that are going on or all around. Yeah, it's it's kind of I mean, it's connected to questions about immigration and colonization. And it's also connected to, um, you know, ideas about contribution. Right. Like the, the yeah. there's this belief that if, if black folks move out to Ohio or even to the territories, to Wisconsin and places where they can. Uh, establish their own communities and, and get a foothold uh, that they might be able to shape the governments in these new Western states. And so there's a, there's a feeling among a lot of people that there's there's a there's a lot of power to be found in uh, establishing themselves as you know their own independent, self-sufficient uh, Black agrarian communities. That it would be uh, not only good for them, the people living in those communities. But that it would, they would become an example of the capacity for black people to support themselves. Uh, but then there are a lot of folks who say, you know, um, a lot of things to object to this. One, I, you know, I like living in the city. I like being close to the black people that I'm close to. I like having access to the kinds of political activism that I have access to here in New York, where, you know, the first five of the black national conventions are held in Philadelphia and many others that take place in the 1840s and 50s are held in the sort of centers of the urban Northeast. And so um, I think that it's I think that there's a there's a feeling that, you know, moving moving out to Wisconsin or moving out to rural Ohio is in some ways the kind of withdrawal or the kind of distance that is quite similar to moving across the Atlantic, that it can feel so far. Uh, even as transportation and communication are developing in the 19th century, um, the distance the distance from Ohio to Manhattan is 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 quite a long distance in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it is interesting though that you, you spend several pages, uh, quite a few pages, talking about the 1843 convention in mm-hmm. Buffalo. Right. Um, Buffalo, um, Frederick Douglass, of course, will eventually settle in Rochester. Right. I mean, those those are cities that point to the West. I mean, they're extraordinarily yeah. important in the yeah. national economy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the 1843 convention, uh, I'm thinking particularly of the contributions of William C. Monroe yes. and the uh, resolution that he made. Yeah. Uh, regard- could you could we talk about that for just a, a bit? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because this is one of those things that um, requires or required some some chasing. Like Monroe, Monroe issues this resolution that essentially says, based on Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution, the Privileges and Immunities Clause, we are citizens. Uh, and, and basically the Privileges and Immunities Clause says that uh, citizens of one state are entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens in another state. And this is one of these tools that black people pull from the Constitution that they're using to, to argue and saying, you know, we're entitled to rights and protections. We are entitled to those protections wherever we might go. So Monroe just wants the convention to agree to this statement. But it's really controversial for some people, including Frederick Douglass, uh, because Douglas is at this point invested in the Garrisonian brand of abolitionism, rooted in this idea that the Constitution is fundamentally corrupt and pro-slavery. And so for Douglas and others who subscribe to that brand of 
anti-slavery politics, they can't support anything that says that the Constitution contains within it the ideas or arguments for Black equality or Black rights in the U.S. They want to dismantle the Constitution and rebuild the government in a more fundamental way rather than trying to draw out equality from within the Constitution. And so Monroe's resolution actually required some some chasing down because one of the final acts of the 1843 convention is to vote to expunge it, to remove it <laughs> from the records. The, the folks in the convention are so deeply opposed to this statement. Uh, and I go through some of the different reasons why they might have felt that way uh, beyond just this anti-slavery political uh, ideology, but they remove it. And so it's, you know, it's, it, I was able to track it down in, in other newspapers that were reporting on the convention, but I think it's really fascinating how, I, I think that that's a really fascinating example of how a potentially really straightforward and significant statement about black people's legal status uh, could be pushed out of black political, uh, of a black political space because it could be of, canceled, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah perhaps right. Uh, it, it was it was removed. It was it was a it was an idea that was opposed to the sort of foundational beliefs of a lot of black activists at the time. Uh, and so they wanted to make sure that um, that idea didn't go forth with with their sanction. Um, and that's and, yet, and that's what they did. And yet, Frederick Douglass has a very notable um, conversion. Yeah, um, partly yeah. through Lysander Spooner, um, maybe for some other reasons. Uh, I'm not I'm not enough of an expert on it to know. I think a lot a lot of it. Yeah, well, well I I can talk. Uh, as, yeah, go ahead. As talk said, about I can talk now. a lot about Douglass, but I was just going to say I think a lot of the actual um, a lot of the tension between him and Garrison comes from. Uh, more personal sources. I think that there's um, Garrison said at, at, at least once, I would say at various points, he said um, to Douglas, like you provide the facts and I'll provide the sort of theory. Like there was this, um, huh. there was this feeling among Garrison and I think a lot of other white abolitionists that they were the theorizers. They were the thinkers of anti-slavery, and people like Douglas were, were the exhibits, the uh, evidence yeah, of the horrors yeah. of slavery. Uh, and so I think that Douglas chafed at that. And I think that he also um, increasingly chafed at the sort of rigidity of Garrison's ideas, yeah. right? There's, you know, yeah. Douglas, does, does, Douglas does have feelings that the government needs to be fundamentally transformed, but he comes to sort of um, question the idea that there has to be one particular way for anti-slavery advocacy to be advanced. And, and he resists the idea that he increasingly resists the idea that Garrison should be the arbiter of that, that he should be able to tell Douglas how to yeah. work. Um, He's, yeah. uh, there's a weird way in which Fred, Frederick Douglass is one of the most practical politicians of the, of the 19th century. Mm hmm. Uh, given that he never runs for office, yeah. um, but he has a very, um, there's, there's something very just practical. This is how we're going to get things done. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a way in which I might, I always feel looking at, at, at Garrison or even Wendell Phillips, they're not really that interested in getting things done. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but Frederick Douglass is very interested in that. Yeah, he, I, I would say he, he's, he brings together those two threads of the sort of idealism and uh, practical sort of concrete political projects. I mean, you know, it, I think that 
the extent to which Douglas remains invested in the possibilities of the United States because of the the language of the nation's founding documents to me is, is very idealistic um, uh-huh. and, and very, uh, um, I don't know. It, it's, it's one of the things that I, I found. So I, I always find so fascinating about a lot of these black activists is, is like, how, how do they maintain hope in the uh-huh. face of so much evidence uh, that suggests that again, that John Rushmore was right, right. That, uh-huh. that, that they're not actually going to be able to belong. And so I think that there's part of it is this feeling that there are, there are tools, there are things like the openness or the, the vagueness of citizenship, but there's also just this, just this belief, this insistence, like I, I was born here. I belong here. This is my home. Uh, and this feeling that eventually that, that has to win out, that has to be the defining um, facet of, you know, what shapes their status. And, and I think that that's, uh, it's more optimistic than I feel in a lot of situations. And so I think it's, it's fascinating that they feel that so strongly. They feel optimistic in, in the, in the, uh, in the face of uh, much greater adversity than any of us can imagine. Right. Yeah. Um, let's talk briefly about, uh, something that might be surprising to people, uh, the inclusion of the 1848, uh, European revolutions in the book. Yeah. Um, I know about this in a weird way because of 1848's importance amongst um, in the South, hmm. amongst uh, slave masters mm-hmm. uh, who are, for whatever reason, are quite enamored at first <laughs> yeah. of the 1848 revolutions. But it turns out it's interesting. This is a the 1848 uh, craze for 1848 is, is on both yeah. sides of the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah, uh, you'll find it at first among South Carolina slave owners, uh, right. as much as you find it amongst uh, New York uh, African American abolitionists. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Yeah. So. I think that it's actually a, a craze in part among black abolitionists because they they want to criticize white slave owners who are who are invested in this. And, and so Douglas, Douglas is a key figure here. Douglas goes to the UK uh, in 1845 for an anti-slavery lecture tour and also because he's just published his first autobiography where he basically uh, publicly confesses that he is a fugitive slave. And so he's a little bit worried about being captured and taken back to slavery. So he goes to the UK to travel and, and give lectures and expose the horrors of slavery. He comes back and in 1847, he establishes his own newspaper, The North Star. And then in the spring of 1848, there is this wave of protests and riots and in some cases, uh, overthrow of monarchs and the establishment of new people's governments in Western and Central Europe. And so white Americans, I, and I, I suspect that white South Carolinians are probably uh, doing this. White Americans are paying close attention to these events and they're celebrating because they feel like their nation and and its revolution in 1776 inspired Europeans to reject monarchy and to revolt in 1848. But black activists are saying, wait a minute, how can you celebrate the overthrow of tyrants in Europe when you're supporting tyranny at home in the form of the oppression of enslaved people? And, And when you're, you know, maybe not even supporting, but actively acting as tyrants by enslaving people and encouraging the oppression of free black people. You, you can't be for freedom or liberty abroad if you're not actively working for it at home. And so what I, what I found is that black people are sort of invested in European revolutions in part because they feel like, man, this is a, a massive community of people who are rising up to fight against injustice 
maybe we should try to find a way to connect with them, to align with them, and to feel like we can belong in that kind of community. Uh, so there's this, this hope that they might establish a kind of connection across the Atlantic based on political convictions, based on this investment in the fight for justice. But there's also, I think, a feeling that um, it's really useful to emphasize what's actually happening in the European revolutions in order to contrast that with what's happening in the U.S. And so Douglas wrote at one point, while Europe is becoming Republican, we are becoming despotic, we being the U.S. Mm -hmm. While France is contending for freedom, we are extending slavery. And so there's this, uh, there's this, what I, part of what I write about here is, is this politics of shame. And it's kind of extending this idea uh, from the historian Richard Blackett, who wrote a terrific book uh, about this called Building an Anti-Slavery Wall, about trying to criticize the U.S., black activists criticizing the U.S. from abroad and trying to build an international community that was opposed mm -hmm. to the practices of slavery and slave owners in the U.S. And so I think that that sort of builds and persists through the 1848 revolutions. And, and black folks are saying, you can't join or, or celebrate any sort of uh, progress in Europe if you're not act actually doing work toward it. Uh, at home. And so, so the 1848 revolutions become a tool, like a, a weapon that black activists are using to continue to criticize the injustice and the inequality that's, that's characteristic of the U.S. Mm -hmm. But as they flirt or they, they, they consider this notion of international community, um, they decide that that's not enough. Let me, let me quote you to yourself. Yeah. It's always thrilling. Uh, <laughs> An international community of activists could help black Americans experience a sense of belonging, but it would not provide them with a legal relationship they desired. Mm -hmm. African Americans wanted to feel bonds of brotherhood in a community, but most importantly, they wanted legal protections, right. including formal voice in the government. The U.S. Constitution made possible precisely that kind of legal relationship, provided lawmakers would agree black people were entitled to its safeguards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's where you get at this the the blend of the sort of um, practicality and the idealism, right? Like like people like Douglas, black activists want rights. They don't just want to feel like they belong. And so there's this um, there's this essential reality that um, rights, as they understand them, rights come from a government. They want the right to vote. They want the right to live in a particular place and to remain in that place, whether it's uh, and, and in this case, it's the place where they were born. And so they want government protection for um, they want specific government actions that will protect and secure those rights that they desire. Um, following 1848, I mean, th there's been uh, there's 30 years of well, literally and for most of it, a gag rule on even talking mm -hmm. about slavery in the in the United States Congress. Um, the Missouri Compromise had sort of put the issue away. We're not going to think about it. Mm. Um, and then all of a sudden all that breaks wide open, um, in 1850, mm. um, along with that then, and then, uh, uh comes the Fugitive Slave Act. Mm. Uh, this suddenly creates a new intensification, um, of the question of citizenship. And you have a, the chapter is called runaways or citizens claimed as such. Could you explain mm -hmm. what you meant, what that phrase means runaways or citizens claimed as such? Yeah. So this is a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a phrase that captures an anti-slavery argument, a black and white activist argument that says that, um, 
essentially any person who is accused of being a fugitive slave, if, if they're a person that's born in the United States, they're actually a citizen. And so they should be entitled to rights and to legal protections. And so the, the broadest argument that people make is that uh, any fugitive slave, or, or I guess I should say the, uh, the most concrete argument that a lot of activists make is that any person who is accused of being a fugitive slave should be entitled to a trial by jury to determine their fate before they are transported to the South. Uh, and this is a, a transformative argument for the 1830s and 40s in the northern states because there are a lot of places, and, and I write a lot about New York in this chapter, there, there are a lot of places like New York where a single judge has the power to decide a person's fate, to, to decide whether that person will be determined to be free or a slave and sent into slavery. And so essentially what people are saying is that we should think about alleged fugitives as citizens, as people who are entitled to uh, legal protections and, and should, have, um, should have safeguards in place to defend their freedom rather than the legal system being one that uh, is interested in or invested in protecting uh, the property rights of slave owners. And so I, I write in this chapter about not only those arguments, but alongside or parallel to those arguments, moments like uh, this incident in 1837 in New York when a man named William Dixon was arrested and then during his trial essentially was liberated by more than a thousand black people who basically hmm. for forcibly separated him from local authorities outside of New York's city hall. And so Dixon ended up being sent back to jail, but this was a crisis point among black activists. There are people who are criticizing this mob action and saying that it's, it's a thoughtless act, that it's not actually politically productive. But I think that there are interesting, and there are really important ways in which that attempted rescue runs in parallel and is driving in the same direction as the claim that black people or alleged fugitives are citizens entitled to rights. People are recognizing that the legal system as it exists was insufficient and they were demanding change. They were saying that this system is too favorable to the interests of slave owners and it should be protecting black freedom. So the folks on the street by rescuing William Dixon or trying to rescue him, by seizing him from uh, the legal authorities of the city, they were doing the same thing as people like Samuel Cornish, who was still working as a news editor in the city. Uh, they were saying that this legal system is insufficient and must change. It was just a different way of uh, using their voices, right? And so, so what I really am interested in getting at in this chapter is not only the political complexity of uh, black activism in this period, the, the creativity of black political thought in these moments, and, and, and also, I think I'm, I'm trying to drive toward an, an awareness or a rethinking of um, how much source material we can have available to read black political thought, even mm -hmm. if we don't have words and even if we don't have what look like the sort of um, respectable, I'm, I'm using air quotes here, uh, respectable political forms of the 19th century, we can know, we can know, not only know what black people were thinking, but know that black people were thinking, even when they're doing things that might look uh, rash or uh, violent or unnecessarily extreme. And I think it's really critical that we 
analyze and examine black political thought in uh, popular street politics, that we don't dismiss these things as violent or unruly um, or unnecessary um, just because they look unfamiliar. They don't look like a politician giving a speech or a press yeah. conference or a newspaper editorial. But in, 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 sometimes they did. <laughs> right. um, yeah. I'm thinking that the Cross Whites uh, incident yeah. um, right. and the, res- the resolutions uh, made at Detroit City Hall by yeah. the people that had defended the Cross Whites or who yeah. protested the Cross Whites. Um, you know, in the 18th century, we call that a petition to the crown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, friends of mine are tracking down there are lots of petitions like this in 18th century Virginia from free blacks. Mm-hmm. Um, to the governor and to the crown uh, for their liberties, mm-hmm. uh, to appealing to their liberties. And here, this group said, live or die, sink or swim, we will never be taken back into slavery. Mm-hmm. We wish to be a peaceable and sober portion of the community, willing to abide by the constitution and laws of this and all other states, provided those yeah. laws recognize no slavery within their borders. And you have a very nice uh, fr- sentence. You say, those words from Detroit express the lawmaking potential of organized acts of law breaking, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is great. Well, that's yeah. just a great Yeah, great no, it's, 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 it's a, I mean, it's, it, it's fascinating how radical this politics was and how open it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, we'll follow all your laws, as long as your laws don't uphold slavery. That's that's mm-hmm. incredible to say that in 1848. Um, it is. And, it's, and I think that it's, I don't know, I, I think that there are, are really important resonances that, that I think should in, encourage or I hope would encourage people to um, think more critically about the, the kinds of political forms we see uh, in, you know, connected to the Black Lives Matter movement, connected to contemporary struggles for racial justice, right? I think that um, there's always room to analyze the political thought of mm-hmm. the various actions that we see, even if newspaper commenters and, and op-eds, if, if they refuse to see the politics there. So, so yeah. the, the, in, the, in the chapter, I, Samuel Cornish basically says that, uh, I think he, he writes an editorial that denounces this mob that rescues William Dixon, and he calls them the thoughtless part of our colored citizens. And I, you know, I, I think it's really... Uh, the thing that I've been saying and thinking is that uh, these sorts of actions are only thoughtless to people who refuse to see the thought that is in mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's a really great point. And um, there are plenty, there's plenty of ways in, in contemporary um, that regarding the last two months, mm-hmm. there's a lot of evidence of the way that people who are in sort of the protests uh, actually are thinking. Yeah. Um, if you just pay attention to, there's tons of video, right. there's tons of stuff to see the new, there are nuances within the crowd, which can be teased out more easily than they ever have been able to be teased out before. Mm. Um, as, and you know, ex- examples like this resolution give you an ability to also see the depth of thinking that go, that, that is a far from unthinking group. Right. They have yeah. a lot of thoughts. Right. And they can put those thoughts into action. Right. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's not, uh, Another way to think about it is radical politics are, are not simply uh, or, or purely emotional politics, that there's, a, mm-hmm. there's an intellectual history uh, to these radical political projects. And I think that there are, there are some people who are uncomfortable with that um, idea, with the, the idea of sort of analysis of mm-hmm. radical political acts. But 
you know, if we can if we can analyze radical politics surrounding slavery, then we should be able to continue to do that. Yeah. Um, well, as in other contexts, as a mentor of mine, I think I've quoted him before, has often said, uh, uh, "People believe things and often can explain why." So, hmm. uh, if to listen to him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let's talk about Dred, John, for something else. Let's talk about Dred Scott. Yeah. Um, another, another kind of radical politics, an but other in a kind of ex- way. An extraordinarily, I'm glad you said an extraordinarily radical politics. Yeah. Um, right. and, uh, you, as I said to you earlier, um, you helped me see Dred Scott in a different way because of everything that's come before mm-hmm. Dred Scott makes so much more sense now, uh, given that Roger Tawney, is better informed about and more conscious of this push for African-American citizenship than I am uh, mm-hmm. as a historian. He's been living it. He's been watching it. He's been observing it. He lived forever, mm-hmm. so he, he's been seeing it go, <laughs> go on. Um, right. So what – and it, you also remind me of how many things Tawny's trying to do in Dred yeah. Scott. So what uh, are some of the targets that he's shooting at? He's yeah. trying to settle once and for all. Right. So, so essentially – uh, I guess I'll try to give the quickest and, and dirtiest version. Dred Scott was an enslaved man in Missouri. He traveled with his owner to Illinois and to, I think, the Wisconsin Territory. Mm-hmm. And he lived there for some time in the 1830s. And these are places where slavery was outlawed. So, sla- so Scott eventually sued for his freedom on the grounds that he had spent time in places where slavery was illegal. And in response, Tawny said, uh, I, w- I would say a couple of major things. I'll talk about two of them. One of them is that at the time of the nation's founding, Tony said, black people had no rights that white men were bound to respect. They could not be termed citizens. They did not have the right to file lawsuits. And so Dred Scott, Tony said, didn't have the right to take his owner to court and claim his freedom. And so you're, you're right. You're, what you're getting at is that Roger Tony could have stopped there. Uh, uh-huh. Dred Scott, under this argument, didn't have the right to file a suit. But Tony went on. And this is the part of the ruling that was most controversial, I think, at the time. He said that a slave owner could not be prevented from bringing humans that they owned to the free states, to states where slavery was outlawed. So the Constitution, in Tawney's vision, protected all sorts of property, and no state law could supersede that. Essentially, he said there could be no truly free states. Slave owners could go wherever they wanted. And, and this was no outrageous. Federal, there's no right. federal law. I mean, there's right. a compromise. They compromise. These are all invalid. Right. Uh, the const- they, were, they were all unconstitutional, unconstitutional because yes. the Fifth Amendment protected property rights. Uh, and so this was outrageous and frightening to white Northerners and, and not to not to white Northerners who weren't abolitionists. These are, you know, people who weren't abolitionists, people who weren't in favor of racial equality, people like Abraham Lincoln in the 1850s who was a sort of moderate, moderately, mildly opposed to the expansion of slavery. People like Lincoln didn't want slavery in northern communities. They didn't want to have to compete economically with unpaid laborers or with wealthy plantation owners. And so Lincoln denounced the ruling and said that Tawney was part of a conspiracy against freedom because what Tawney was doing was trying to bring slavery everywhere. And so this was a big part of Lincoln's rise to prominence uh, as a political figure in the late 1850s, um, or I guess his, his sort of rise to his peak of prominence was this denunciation of, you know, what, what was called the slave power conspiracy uh, at the time. And black Americans actually focused on the other part of Tawney's opinion, and that's the part that's come down to us as the most infamous, this, this claim that black people could not be citizens. And, and Tawney said, Uh, Among other things that are outlandish, Tawney said, if anything related to the Constitution can be regarded as settled, 
than it was the meaning of the word citizen. And, and that's just not true. And black <laughs> folks called him out on this. But I think that what's, what's maybe most fascinating here is that uh, I think Tawny was so direct and aggressive in his uh, effort to shut down uh, claims to black citizenship. I think he was doing that because he was aware of how potent black citizenship politics was to this point, how potent black people's claims that they were citizens and their claims to rights based on that status uh, had been in the antebellum period. Uh, and so black folks saw, I think, that Tawny was trying to suppress one of their chief political strategies. And so they continued to work to try to basically uh, keep the debate going. They called Tawny's opinion a foul and infamous lie. And their hope was that they could convince people that Tawny was a liar, that Tawny was unreliable. And then if they did that, then the discussion about citizenship and African-American status would have to continue. Uh, so basically, they were trying to be sure that Tawny didn't have the last word in this debate. They were saying that he was corrupt, that his decision was illegitimate, and so conversation had to continue. And there, there are interesting ways that Lincoln's criticism of Tawny as, you know, a guy who just wants to advance pro-slavery interests, that criticism echoes black activists who are saying Tawny is, is, is infamous. He's, he's a liar. All he's doing is trying to advance the interests of slave owners. And so there's, there's some parallels or some, some uh, echoes, I think, that are going on in the, in the critiques of Roger Tawney for these two very different threads in his ruling that, that upset uh, two very different sets of people, uh, black activists and uh, President Lincoln, who at the time was not at all on the side of black activists and abolitionists. Let's, uh, we have to fast forward a little um, mm -hmm. rather briskly now, but I, I just wanted to touch on another aspect of citizenship, which is military service. Mm -hmm. um, there's been, uh, I, I've always uh, probably thought of uh, African-American, uh, the urge uh, to, to have Amer African-American soldiers um, in the Civil War by Frederick Douglass and others uh, as, as a way of highlighting the importance of the war as a liberation struggle, mm -hmm. but also to highlight uh, the fact that um, um, the African-American men are men. Uh, mm. They are not beasts. Mm. Uh, they are not, uh, they are not happy go lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, they are ferocious warriors, uh, and men who yeah. are willing to defend themselves and their community. Uh, but it turns out that maybe I'm over, I and other people are overly complicating things. Mm. Um, get back to a civic Republican view. Uh, citizens are soldiers in times of need. And mm -hmm. that's what African-Americans, therefore, as citizens, uh, need to do in yeah. the Civil War. Yeah, there's, there's a way that, you know, black military services is framed in, in both of those ways. It's, it's a contribution to a community, but it's also a, a way to, to prove black masculinity. And, you know, citizenship was the province of men. And so uh, proving their manhood, their manliness was really critical uh, to asserting their fitness for citizenship. But... There's, you know, there's a lot of, I think the Civil War in particular is a, is a fascinating moment to think about the history of the politics surrounding black military service. And I think what's, what's particularly fascinating is that there are tensions among black Americans within black communities about uh, black service. So, so Douglas famously said that once the black man had a musket on his shoulder and the letters U.S. on his chest, that no one could deny that he was entitled to citizenship. 
And lots of people hoped that black military service during the war would, would produce lasting change in black people's status in the country. But there was also opposition to this. Black men had been fighting in wars on behalf of the U.S. from the nation's beginnings, but the nation had still refused to uh, secure rights or uh, protections to African-Americans. So black men had been trying to enlist in the Union Army from the start of the Civil War, but for most of 1861 and 62, they were rejected. And they were only really embraced when things looked bad. And so some black activists said, basically, it was absurd for black men to join a fight to defend the laws of a nation that was bind, that were the same laws that were binding enslaved people. Why should black men fight for the U.S. government? So as Douglas is saying, we have to do this, it's going to secure equality. There are black men saying, no, like, why would I risk myself? Why would I shed blood uh, on behalf of this country? And so th- there were there were good reasons for black folks to be skeptical about calls for them to risk their lives on behalf of the government. Uh, But in the end, black service did become a powerful political tool. African-American men were saying that uh, one of the phrases that that they repeat is, uh, we've carried the cartridge box, the the box of bullets that we carry into battle. And so now we must have access to the ballot box. Uh, And in one of Lincoln's last speeches before he was assassinated, he said, black men who had fought in the war should be among the first to have access to the vote. Uh, In fact, it's his last speech. It's a speech about Louisiana. Right. Um, And that's the one that John Wilkes listens to and and vows then to and basically kills him because of that line. Yeah. Yeah. He seems to have been outraged. Booth seems Mm -hmm. to have been outraged by uh, Lincoln's proposal. And so, you know, it's it's and I think that's a that's a really critical marker of the struggle that black folks are facing in this period. Right. It's a halting, gradual, partial change. Some black men, those who had survived this military struggle, they might be allowed to vote. And just Mm -hmm. that is so Mm -hmm. outrageous to white Southerners that they killed the president. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So in in some ways, you suggest that reconstruction policy from the perspective of black activists is a continuation of the previous citizenship policy. Is that Mm -hmm. is that fair? Is that I mean, it's an expansion and intensification. Yeah. Really, they're doing the same things that they were trying to do before. Yeah, I think I think that that's part of what I, I wanted to sort of think about my project as uh, exploring some of the, the roots or the histories of black politics during Reconstruction. The work that African-Americans are doing uh, in the antebellum period is to try to encourage the government to hear their concerns and to respond to them. And during the Civil War, I mean, the process of emancipation is, is the prime example of this. Uh, black folks run to the union lines and the federal government gradually enacts policies that say the Union Army is going to be a vehicle for freedom. The Union Army cannot send uh, fugitive slaves back to their owners. And so that's that's an example of uh, a relationship being established, a a link between people and the government in which people express concerns and the government responds and addresses those concerns. And so the hope of African-Americans is that that's going to continue during Reconstruction. And, you know, it, it does in some ways. By 1865, 4 million people are freed through the 13th Amendment. Congress defines citizenship as a birthright in the 14th Amendment and says black people are entitled to equal, equal protection of the laws. And, and in 1870, the 15th Amendment entitled black men to vote. And so theoretically, in this moment, the government was becoming an organization that would hear and respond to African-Americans' concerns. Uh, if a person was restricted from the polls, they could appeal to their 15th Amendment rights. And so African-Americans hoped that there would be a connection that would be secure. 
that the government would listen to their concerns and respond to them. Uh, and Reconstruction seemed like, uh, for a time, it seemed like an auspicious moment for that kind of hope to be realized for African Americans. But um, we, sort of, we yeah. should know what happens next. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, tie that up then by uh, reflecting on the story of uh, Henry Highland Garnett, which is how mm-hmm. you conclude the book and mm-hmm. how that looks back to the, the debate between Russworm and, and Cornish. Can you mm-hmm. tell us about him? And Yeah. So, so Garnett was a, a born into slavery in, in Maryland and, and uh, escaped freedom as a child with his family. Uh, he was an activist and an abolitionist and a black minister. Uh, and he had dabbled in the 1850s with the idea of leaving the United States. He had, he had considered uh, voluntary emigration because he had doubts uh, about the country. But he, he lived, he stuck around in the U.S. through the Civil War era. Uh, and he lived through the struggles and, and really the failings of Reconstruction. Uh, during the 1870s, uh, white Northerners and American lawmakers basically got tired of the work that was necessary to sustain black rights in the South. In the face of uh, hateful, racist violence, campaigns of terror waged by white Southerners to try to restrict black freedom, white Northerners and American lawmakers said, you know what, this is too much work. We don't want to continue the fights that we, did, that we had waged during the Civil War. So the federal government withdrew. And by the late 1870s, black people possessed formal rights, but in practice, many of them felt like they were little more than slaves. And so Garnett is observing this from the North. He's living in New York. And I think that I think that seeing the collapse of Reconstruction and the persistence of racism, not only among American people, but in U.S. government policy, that that led Garnett to look again toward uh, West Africa. And so he told one friend that he, uh, he longed to reach the land of my forefathers and with my, free, with my feet press her soil. So Garnett, you know, Garnett had been born in Maryland, but there's still this feeling that he didn't really belong in the U.S. And there's this hope that he might find a place where he did belong in West Africa. So he left. He went to Liberia in 1881. And there are interesting ways that this echoes John Russworm's journey in 1829. Garnett went to Liberia And he died there a few months later in 1882. He was still hoping for somewhere that he could find a home where he could find belonging. And so so this is, um, I mean, part of the story that I tell in my book is this grim story. But I I think it's a true story uh, about black people seeking and struggling to belong in the U.S. And after decades, still feeling like perhaps they don't and perhaps they can't and having to feel like they have to continue that search uh, elsewhere beyond the borders of the United States. My guest today has been Christopher Bonner. He's the author of Remaking the Republic, Black Politics and the Creation of American Citizenship. Chris, thanks so much for joining us on Historically Thinking. All right. Thank you, Al. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 